Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz World Report. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Tony Jones, who's the author of the book, Did God Kill Jesus? And the title of the book alone sets the tone for today's show. Tony is a professor of theology at the United Theological Seminary. He's also developed an iPhone app called Ordain Thyself. And he regularly speaks around the world on topics like the emerging church and Christian spirituality. So we can safely assume that for Christ's sake, he knows a thing or two about Christianity. Welcome to the show, Tony. Vip, thank you so much for having me. Well, so you are a theologist, right? Yeah, yeah. The, I've had I've been called worse, but uh, theologian is the name that uh, we like to go by. Yep. And what do you, what do you guys do? Well, uh, you know, I get a I get a PhD in theology, so you don't have to, and then I can, <laughs> uh, then, I can then I can help translate the things of God. Theology is properly. Speaking, I mean, technically, it is uh, theo is the is the word for God, and um, logos is word. So, broken down to its mm. most rudimentary sense, it is words about God, or really the study of God. That's what theology is. There are related fields in uh, divinity schools and seminaries mm. and uh, theological academies, like biblical studies and church history and things of that nature, but uh, theology is kind of the more philosophical of those disciplines. So do you study the Word of God from a critical point of view? Yeah, very much so. That's that's a great way to put it. I, I do study it from a critical point of view, mm. uh, from a historical point of view, and uh, I mean, I also am a professing Christian myself, not all theologians are, but I am, so I also think that that text is holy and sacred. Right. But, um, but, I, but I study it as, as, you know, as a professor and a theologian, I do try to turn a critical eye to it as well. So do you influence how pastors preach? Because, you know, these days seem to be a very thin line between what these pastors are doing, between preaching and motivating. And, you know, I don't know whether I'm learning about God or learning about greed, you know. Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, I do think that there are pastors who turn to us theologians Mm. and uh, read our books. Uh, I definitely speak at pastors' conferences, and I teach at a couple different seminaries, so I do think I have some influence um, on some clergy around the United States and across the world who read my blog and read my books. Mm. But, um, you know, it's like, the, it's like the political world with which you are surely familiar. It's, we live in a very polarized time, so... There are other clergy around the country uh, who very much disagree with my take on God or on the Bible. Right. And so they would uh, not only not listen to me, they'd probably <laughs> vociferously argue against me. But I've also noticed they have turned it into a business model where they seem to be feeding a some sort of a need within... Um, their congregation, you know, some sort of a emotional fulfillment where, you know, you have a lot of pastors that are coming out with a lot of books and, and they're talking on the motivational, the inspirational, and sort of taking off where religion left off. 
I think that a lot of people in the Christian church in America, especially leaders, clergy, um, are struggling to figure out why Christianity is dwindling in numbers, Mm. why people are less interested in belonging to churches and going to Bible studies and sending their kids to church camps. And so a lot of clergy are looking for ways to re-engage Americans in the life of the church. And some of them do that, I agree with you, by, um, you know, by changing, by focusing on parts of the message that have not traditionally been a a core to the gospel. And um, one of the things that's gotten a lot of buzz in the last couple weeks is that on his HBO show, John Oliver basically started a church. I know. He was, uh, you know, pointing out the fact that um, some of these uh, on uh, online and television uh, preachers, they use the tax-exempt status afforded to them by the IRS to basically line their own pockets, mm-hmm. right? You know, if that's what you're getting at, I think that, that uh, you know, John Oliver, boy, that, that went so so viral, so fast, so it obviously touched a nerve for a lot of people. It did, and so did that guy Creflo Dollar, who wanted to buy a plane. Yeah, Creflo Dollar uh, wanted to buy, a, I think, a sixty-five million dollar uh, jet, and you know, God he needed to get him. in touch with the Lord up there. But Vip, there, there's a long line of people. You know, I mean, back in the day when you and I were um, uh, in our twenties, I suppose, uh, Oral Roberts was saying that. You know, the Lord needed him to build this massive prayer tower on the campus of Oral Roberts University, and if if the donors didn't pony up the money, the Lord was going to call him home. And uh, and sure enough, that was quite that's quite an ultimatum. That is. And uh, he had his you know he got it built. Um, well, let's talk about the needs of the Christians later on in the show. I want to get to your book right away. Yeah, sure. Um, did. God killed Jesus, and that's a question to you. <laughs> you want me to give it away, man? Nobody's going to buy the book. That's the punchline of the whole book. I just don't want people to flip to the last page when they're standing in the bookstore and say, oh, I know the answer. No, I, th- I, I think in your book they'd want to go through each and every page because well, they want to know why you think what you say. That's kind of you to say it. You know, um, uh, Writing books these days is a, is a precarious uh, endeavor. and Yes, uh, but answering so, my question isn't. Yeah, one of the things we do is we uh, give books provocative titles and uh, bright red covers, mm. both of my book has. And um, in, a, in an attempt to try to get people's t- attention and get their imaginations to think about this book. And really, um, the reason I titled the book Did God Kill Jesus mm. is because a lot of Christians... Uh, in America have a particular view of the cross and what happened on the cross and the relationship between God and Jesus that basically pits God against Jesus and says that, um, you know, God needed basically a pound of flesh, Mm -hmm. and he took that from his own son. And it's very problematic to think that God is the author of Jesus' death for two reasons, if you're a Christian. Um, one is that the Bible, uh, particularly the Gospels, do not portray the relationship between God and Jesus as adversarial, but but 
um, very much a loving and affectionate relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. And secondly, in, in the more theoretical realm, if you believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. you believe that God is these three eternal persons that, um, that are never in disharmony with one another. So, so this is why I, I gave it that provocative title, Did God Kill Jesus? But how does what you write about change what we know about Christianity? Well, what I'm trying to do is break open for people a couple things. The first is this: we th- this this view of the atonement. The atonement is that the the kind of the 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 theological term we mm. use for it. Okay, but you and I can talk about it as the death of Jesus. So, what happened when Jesus died? Well, Vip, I mean, uh, a, the Roman Empire killed a Judean peasant in the first century. Not not newsworthy, you know? Mm-hmm. There, there was nothing newsworthy about Jesus' death except for his unique relationship to God. Had he not had something unique, he would have been just another religious martyr in a trail of blood of many, many religious martyrs who die, in, you know, anonymously. Mm-hmm. But uh, Jesus claimed something unique, and his followers really doubled down on that after his death and said, this guy, this guy was special, and this guy's death means something, unlike all those other deaths. Hmm. This, guy's, this guy's death matters. Well, a lot of Christians in America have one particular view of what that death means, and you, you, know, you and I can talk about that a little bit. What I try to do in the book, what I want to do, is to get people to see there are multiple views of what happened in Jesus' death, why Jesus' death saves us. There is not one answer. It's a multiple-choice answer, and the, probably the correct answer is all of the above. Hmm. Are those sort of answers a convenient way of not really giving an answer? Mm. Well, I do proffer my own answer at the end of the book of, hmm. of how I think it happened, but one of the things that I think Christians in America tend to do is they tend to be a little bit blind to the long and uh, rich history of the church. So people have understood Jesus' death in multiple ways. I, I tell this story in the book about having lunch with a very conservative minister. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him about this very issue and saying, oh, man, there are so many ways that we can understand Jesus' death. And one of the things I like to think is that we're, we're shining, instead of shining one spotlight from one angle or one direction onto the cross, we've got multiple spotlights that shine at it from multiple directions. And he looked at me and shook his finger at me and said, you should never preach because all you're going to do is confuse people if you tell them there are different ways to understand this. There's, I don't care what people in the history of the church said. There's one way. It's my way. Well, in some ways, I think that is more of avoiding the, the, the issue than telling people and, and, and kind of assuming that people are smart enough to be able to handle mm-hmm. All the different ways that people have viewed things and say, now let's, 
now let's make up our own minds. But you know something? People stop getting smart when they engage in religion. You know, that's where you get all the fanaticism and, and, and yeah. things like that. And I think the guy you were having lunch with, the conservative uh, guy, uh, he said people are confused. Now, in your study of theology, and, and I don't know if you've studied other religions, but you've probably talked to people of other religions. Do you find Christians the most confused of their religion compared to, say, the Muslims, the Jews? I don't. I don't find Christians the most confused. Mm. I think that because Christianity is the largest religion in the world, it's more kind of, um, it's more obvious, it's more evident mm. as we look across the 2.1 or 2.2 billion Christians in the world and say, oh my goodness, I mean, what a widespread, how are these people even members of the same religion? Because this person says this, this person is for gay marriage, this person's against gay marriage. You know, this person says that the Bible is inspired and without error, and this person says the Bible is uh, a poetic myth. You know, um, and yet they all fall under the umbrella of Christians. So I think that, for instance, as Islam matures, I think we will see similarly... Den, basically denom, the, the equivalent of denominations growing up in Islam. We already have those denominations in Judaism. Right. Um, I think that Buddhism will similarly, you know, they've, we already have some of these divisions in Islam. We're just a little bit ignorant of them in, in, in the United States. But I think in other parts of the world, you know, uh, the difference between a Sunni and Shia is like the difference between Lutheran and Catholic, and uh, the people who are brought up in those places, boy, they know the differences. They know exactly what the differences between those are. In your press release, you got me at the first sentence, because it said, Christianity is about love. And I wanted to ask you, is it really? Because it seems to me that Christianity is more about Christ and his glory, the glory of God. It's about loving him more than loving yourself or loving your neighbor. That's a great point. There's there's a long tradition in Christian theology of a thing called theology of glory, and mm. you're right. You're right that a lot of Christianity has been focused on the glorification of God and through Jesus, and particularly in Jesus. And and I think you're right. A lot of churches that you would go to and sing hymns or sing contemporary praise songs on on a Sunday morning you would hear most of the songs would be about glorifying Jesus. Right. And I think that as important as that is, Mm -hmm. I think that the love between Jesus and God the Father is the single most important focal point of Christianity. It is what Jesus came to both proclaim with his words and enact with his behaviors, particularly, you know, healing miracles of people. And um, so I'm not, I wouldn't say they're mutually exclusive. You have to pick one or the other. But of course, we have to uh, order things. This is how we understand things. And I'd say I'm going to put love in front of glory and say that glory comes somewhere down the line from love. Now, theology is a study of religion, right? Theology is a, yeah, theology, I mean, if in the academy, theology is the study of God, and 
if you if you go to a you know public university and you take a religion class mm. or a class in comparative religion, then you would more see the study of Christianity as as a religion as kind of a human construct in understanding God. The theologian is going to spend more time actually talking about the nature of God, and I, I think I do a bit of both in the book and and in my career. In in your study of God, where have you found areas where there have been contradictions? Well, or where wh- things don't add up with history or in in what is being said? Yeah, uh, you know, Christianity, like I think all religions, and again, because Christianity's history is so long, and because it's the world's largest religion presently, mm-hmm. it's you know, Christianity's sins are on full display. <laughs> For, for all to see, and there have been, you know, many, many books written on the missteps in Christianity. And so whether it's, uh, you know, uh, the Crusades, whether it's the Inquisition, uh, whether it's, you know, what Martin Luther was protesting uh, in the 16th century about, um, you know, in the selling of indulgences, basically the Catholic Church selling people's way out of purgatory and into heaven, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, you know, Christianity has definitely has a history of that. But of course, Christianity also has this beautiful, you know, history of of very servant-like uh, leaders, saints of of the Christian faith, who have basically, you know, given their lives on behalf of others some in martyrdom and others just in incredible ministry and service. But in areas of contradiction or in areas where it, it doesn't seem to add up, how do you handle that mm-hmm. in, 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 in the study of theology? Yeah, well, one of the things, uh, I think it, that one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I think it's a very tricky, very tricky uh, theological problem to try to solve this issue of, so here we've got God, and then we've got God sends his son to earth, and then God's son dies on the cross, and then the church, the very early church, uh, particularly the Apostle Paul, looks back on that and says, that death, that's what saves us. Well, as a theologian, then, I'm going to ask, well, what does it save us from? And some people say, well, it saves us from God's wrath. God is so angry at our human sin, mm-hmm. that somebody had to pay a penalty for that sin, and it couldn't be us because we are finite, fallible human beings. It had to be this perfect God figure, this divine figure. But you can have so many arguments. I mean, I could argue back saying, well, you created us, and yeah, then I mean, now you're, a, you're right, blaming I, us. Th- this is what I'm trying to... I'm, I, yeah, exactly, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, point exactly to what you're saying, mm. and that is... Here's a place where Christianity seems to have some internal contradictions. So you'd say, well, to, to the person who says, uh, we're sinful, somebody needs to pay that penalty, your response is exactly the, the, the exactly right logical response. And mm-hmm. that is, hey, God made us this way. Why is God mad for us being sinful when God made us to be sinful? Right. Like, it makes no sense. And these, I think every religion has these internal inconsistencies, and Christianity is not immune. And, um, you know, one of the things that we do as theologians that I do is 
is try to solve these problems in ways that can help people get closer to God. They can, they, they, you know, people, as you can imagine, th- this very thing you're, t- you're, you're bringing up, like people say, well, God, God made me like this. Why is God mad at me if I sin when God made me in a way that God knew I would sin? That's, that's enough to make somebody stop praying, stop going to church, maybe stop believing in God because they bump up against one of these internal inconsistencies. Yeah, because it's almost like if I was to just play devil's advocate, how ironic is that? Um, it's almost like a sick joke. Yeah, Because, right? you know, you have all this temptation. You have all this frustration. Um, and then someone like you or the pastor says, well, you know, God is mad. Uh, or then sometimes someone says, you know, God works in mysterious ways. It actually begs the question, mm-hmm. do we as human beings need to forgive God for all the wrong that happens beyond our control? Ah, what a good one. That's a good, good question. I have an extended uh, uh, section of the book in dealing with that very question, from even from a Jewish perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a brilliant uh, movie that anybody can watch on YouTube called God on Trial, and I would really strongly commend it to all of your listeners. Uh, and it, like I said, it's free to watch on YouTube, and it's a brilliant uh, movie about uh, it's it's a fictionalized account, but it's about uh, prisoners in Auschwitz right. putting God on trial for the horrors of the Holocaust and saying basically we we we've been living under the illusion that we were God's chosen people, and now it seems clear that God has abandoned us. So is God responsible for? this horror that our people are experiencing. And, you know, I won't give it away, but it's a brilliant movie. Mm -hmm. And it does raise this exact question that you're asking. Is God guilty? Does God God need to be forgiven for what God has allowed to happen to us? And a lot of this drives to a bigger philosophical question that, you know, most people have considered and wondered about, and, and you probably have in your own life, and that is how much freedom do human beings have versus how much of our lives are basically prescribed, already decided, already determined, predetermined. The, the theological term for that is predestined. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, Christians fall into two camps on this. Some people say everything was predetermined from the beginning of time by God, and we are just kind of walking down the path that's already been laid out before us, and other people say, no, we have a great deal of freedom. Mm-hmm. We, have, we can choose God or choose to reject God. We can choose to be a good person or be an evil person. We can, um, you know, when we make these choices every day. And uh, this, this very kind of thing, uh, this is, this is c- can be an answer to this question, which I think you're driving at of, like, if Christianity professes a God who is good, who is all good and all loving and all powerful, why is there so much bad in the world? Is why? there an assumption? Is there an assumption, maybe a wrong one, that God is perfect? Because if we forgave God, 
we are more inclined to accept religion and its limitations. Well, you're, I, you know, you're treading on ground that some people will find troubling. I personally don't. This question of should we forgive God, I think it's a fascinating question. It's, it's both theological and existential. As you can imagine, Vip, some of your listeners probably hear you say that, and they're just, they're, they're scandalized that you would, what do you mean, forgive God? God could never do anything wrong. God is all perfect. When a woman is raped, when a woman is raped, when there's an earthquake, uh, when there's a tsunami, you have innocent lives taken away. Um, even in insurance company contracts, mm-hmm. you have the so-called clause, acts of God. Mm-hmm. That, you know, this is beyond what would have been considered a normal event. Yeah. Look, I, I, th- this is exactly one of the questions that I needed to solve in order to write this book. Mm. And I came out with an answer that uh, is m- more in line with the kind of question you're asking and less in line, quite honestly, with the standard way of thinking about God that God is a perfect, omniscient, omnipotent being who's outside of time. Um, what I would say instead is that God, in, in creating the cosmos, God created something with which God could have a relationship. And the only way that could happen is for God to, in some sense, withdraw or retreat in order to make room for there to be something other than God. The cosmos, is not, the cosmos is not God. So God, God, limit, God is mm. self-limiting at the moment God creates and said, this cosmos is other than me, and I'm in relationship with it. And that includes us rational human beings who can actually reflect on this relationship with God. And then, I'll just say in brief, the rest of God's journey with humankind is a journey of God's own self-limitation. So when the woman is raped, when the tsunami hits, when somebody is gunned down, it's not because omniscient God predetermined this from the beginning of the world. It's because God, in order to allow us freedom to grow and evolve and mature as a species, God has withdrawn to an extent, not completely, but enough that we have a great deal of freedom. And what we do with that freedom is, sadly, often evil. Often good, but often evil. Well, maybe it's also beyond God's control. Well, if God abdicated a certain amount of control Mm. in order to give us freedom, then that's right. Look, when you put billions of people... You can imagine, when you say something like this, like... Uh, that woman's rape or grandma's cancer or the tsunami is beyond God's control. You know, you're going to have people, you want to light up a a Twitter storm, go ahead and say that a few times. Hmm. People struggle with that, because people want a God who is all-powerful, who controls everything. And there is some, you know, the Bible has lines like, God knows the number of hairs on your head. Or when a sparrow when a sparrow dies, God knows it. This is how kind of this is how 
all-knowing and all-powerful God is. But but it's different to say God knows mm. number of hairs on your head and God knows when a sparrow dies than it is to say God killed that sparrow, <laughs> you know, right. or God's giving you the receding hairline. Not to say you have a receding hairline. Uh, but I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is this. You know, as we progress in time, our thirst for knowledge, our thirst for answers increases. And and if in the sacred world of religion, answers that are given are not really answers, but more, I guess, blanket justifications. Mm. They leave a certain sense of dissatisfaction. They do, and I think this is one of the reasons that Christianity is struggling in America and throughout Western civilization. I think the church attendance is struggling, but I think people are now resorting to praying in their own space. Yeah, yeah, it's true that people are, and I think it's because one of the main reasons, I think, is exactly what, what you're bringing up, and that is Christianity has too long Hmm. settled with these pat answers. Well, why do bad things happen? If if you're you say God is all good, why do bad things happen? Right. Oh, it's a mystery. It's it's a mystery. Well, that's just not good enough in in a, in this in this very skeptical age, as as you say, as we have evolved right. as a people, as we are on a quest for more knowledge, as science has begun to answer the questions that used to be answered by theology. People aren't as satisfied with these pat answers. But let me take it one step forward. Aren't Christians the weakest defenders of their faith? Because if you look at the Muslims and the Jewish people, they're very strong. Um, And you know why I say that? Because I always say this to some of my guests. I'm a new immigrant to this country. Mm -hmm. Um, Christians, I find in this country, they often, often confuse their religion with political correctness. Now... December's on its way. You can't say Merry Christmas in this country anymore. It's Happy Holidays. It's a very simple example, but to me it's profound. You can't say say Happy Holiday on Eid to a Muslim. Mm -hmm. You're not going to accept that. Right. They don't even say it in, in, in a liberal place like Dubai. It's Eid, it's Ramadan, it's not a happy holiday. Yeah. So that's why I'm asking, you know, um, are Christians so confused and, 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 and they almost feel shy of their own special day? I think that a lot of Christians um, are bad and struggle to defend their own beliefs and religion, and it's true, and it may well be Mm. because Christianity has been in the majority and been dominant for so long, Christians could basically, well, everybody they knew was Christian. Why why do you need to defend your faith when everybody who lives on your block is a Christian, all the kids in your kid's high school is Christian, you know, everybody you work with is Christian, well, you know, you, you're Exhibit A. This is not the case as immigration has changed the face of the United States in the last several decades. And my kids, and I live in a pretty, you know, pretty uh, old-school white suburb of Minneapolis, of a pretty white state, and my kids, 
they are going to school uh, even here hmm. with kids from all over the world uh, who have every different kind of belief, and um, suddenly it's just not as homogeneous as it used to be. It's I not think. because my kid goes to a, a school uh, near the city, and in, in, in his school, uh, Christmas time, it's all happy holidays. Mm-hmm. Not acknowledged. The Christmas bit is not acknowledged. In fact, the Christmas tree is called the friendship tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think this is. I think what you're talking about is kind of a, a, a symptom of our culture mm-hmm. trying to trying to migrate from a dominant Christian culture to a dominant pluralized culture, so that it can no, no longer be assumed that Christians are in the majority or, you know, uh, Christians get all the votes and everybody else is just along for the ride. So we see these symptoms uh, of it, like the war on Christmas and schools trying to be uh, respectful of of other people's religion and knowing that Christianity is no longer dominant. Uh, and Christians struggle to say, well, what does this mean? And and how do we defend our own faith, but how do we also do it respectfully, knowing that we're no longer the only kids on the block? But these are the sort of instances where I feel the followers begin to feel that their religion is not being represented with strength and pride. You know, I mean, do you think as a religion does Christianity make a Christian weak? Because it's all about forgiveness. It's about letting go as opposed to fighting back. Christianity, uh, that's definitely part of Christianity's Mm. prime narrative, is that we sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others, Mm -hmm. that, you know, Jesus said there is no greater thing that a person can do than to lay down their life for their friends. But you see, to me, for you, the importance was that God killed Jesus. For me, um, the birth of Christ is equally important. And I'm not able to wish someone on a celebratory day. Well, I, again, I, I don't, I don't, it, and it, it may be different in your context than it is in mine. It's mm. just, that's just not a kind of a frontline issue in, in, in where I am living and where my kids are growing up. Although, yes, the public schools have moved away from. Uh, Christmas parties and, uh, you know, uh, uh, a creche or nativity scene right. in the town square. I actually, as a Christian, don't have a problem with that because I think the, I think the mixture of Christianity and politics is, uh, uh, is like the old, uh, it's the old proverb, it's like... Uh, when you mix dog poop and ice cream, mm. uh, it doesn't do anything to the dog poop, but it sure ruins the ice cream. And I think it's the same with uh, religion and politics. It doesn't really hurt the politics when religion is in there, but it sure destroys the Christianity. Because, look, politics, uh, uh, the rough-and-tumble world of politics and the American governance is really far removed from the ultimate message of Jesus, which is humility, self-surrender, mm-hmm. sacrifice for the sake of others. That's just not, quite honestly, how you get elected, how you 
you know, make led, get legislation through. And I'm not saying a Christian can't be a politician. That that's that would be a silly kind of thing to say. But I'm just saying that the church is a better protector of Merry Christmas than the shopping mall or uh, city hall. Well, let's talk about the cross because in the book you 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 focus on that. You say the cross feels us leaving guilty, ashamed, and disinclined to love others. And, and that was confusing to me because f- the cross is a symbol of the religion. And I want to question you on that, actually. It's where Jesus was tortured to death. Mm-hmm. But wasn't the cross a Roman invention? Are we praying to a symbol of torture? Yeah, isn't it funny? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people have said, well, what if it were to happen today? Would... Um would 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 we be wearing electric chairs around our necks or syringes? You know, for, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a weird kind of symbol. And I think that um, you know, if you would have worn a cross around your neck in the first century, at the time Jesus died, people mm. would have thought you were you know wackadoodle. Um, the 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 thing is, um, so so you you I think you're right. You're very much right to say that the the birth of Jesus is such a key and important part of the Christian story, and I think as much as we've made a commercialized Christmas, uh, we've kind of lost the fact that it's really, truly a shocking um, kind of development that God would become human, which is what Christians profess. I mean, no other religion professes that God poured God's self into a human body and walked around on this planet. That is unique to Christianity. So, you know, in, in, in so many ways, it's Christmas that's unique to Christianity. But Christians have always looked at the crucifixion of Jesus as the center point of the entire Christian story. It's why virtually every Christian, uh, Christian church in the world has a cross at the center of it. They don't have a manger, you know. Uh, they have a cross. But that and, wasn't that wasn't the invention by the followers of the faith. That was invented by the Romans. Well, the Romans invented the cross as a torture device and, a, and an execution device. They right. actually didn't invent it; they stole it from their neighbors. But for all intents and purposes, they really they really perfected the, the crucifixion. Right. And thousands and thousands of people were crucified in the in the Roman Empire. Jesus was not unique uh, in being crucified. But what Christians did, and what Jesus' death did, and what Christians did looking back on Jesus' death was they took this object, the cross, and it became a sacred object because it was the object upon which their Savior, our Savior, was executed. Hmm. So it, it, it is a sacred object to a Christian, even though um, Christians didn't didn't come up with it um but but because of what happened on it it became a sacred object which you know is very much the case for the whole jesus story um you might even say and you theologians have said that and and i write about in one chapter of the book that part of the beauty of the jesus story is that by becoming human god made humanity sacred by becoming human flesh, God made human flesh sacred. So 
you know, here's another, for instance, where Christianity has, does have a tradition of not quite knowing what to do with the body and not quite knowing what to do with sex, for instance. Sex is kind of dirty and it's kind of looked down upon and it's kind of hidden in a corner. And as a result, we get, you know, pastors and, and <laughs> you know, famous conservative Christian TV stars on, in, in the Ashley Madison data dump. Right. Um, whereas another way to look at that would say that by becoming human, mm-hmm. God made human flesh sacred, and we should celebrate uh, our, our flesh, and we should celebrate our even sexuality, because... Um, without, without infidelity. <laughs> sure, we have. <laughs> you would hope so. You would hope so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it just puzzled me when I was reading your book, and then it sort of hit me, you know, going back to the cross, that is the cross not a, is it not a symbol of evil? Because that's how Jesus was persecuted. You know what you can say, I think, is that it's a symbol of, of great evil and of torture mm. that the Romans used against peasants like Jesus. But Jesus redeemed that 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 item that object so now we see this torture device but we see it redeemed and this is i think exactly the beauty of the jesus story that jesus in in jesus god entered into the very depths of human suffering god god avoided nothing about the human condition. And God entered so deeply into the human condition that God even experienced the most terrible thing a human being could experience, and that is torturous death. And you think, wow, if God would go to that length, that, that, that length to be in solidarity and in unity with human beings, that really tells us something, I think, about the nature of God. When Christians pray... Who should they be praying to, God, Jesus, or the cross? Because you've got Father, Son, and an icon. You should not be praying to the cross. The cross is a symbol. Of the uh, religion. It's merely a symbol, that's right. It's mm-hmm. merely, an, as you say, it's an icon, which is just a, a, a sign, or really like a, almost a, point, a, a pointer. It's like a, it's like a road sign that points us to something else. Right. And what it should point us to is Jesus and Jesus' humility and Jesus' suffering and Jesus' sacrifice mm. on behalf of others. So don't pray to the cross. And I know there are some traditions, particularly within Catholicism, where people may pray to the cross. Um, and I've been in, in countries where I think people are praying to the cross. And I don't think that is probably um, justifiable by looking in the Bible or looking in Christian theology. But yeah, people can people can pray to God, the Father. People can pray to Jesus. Pre- people can pray to the Holy Spirit. When you get into Catholicism and when you get into Eastern Orthodoxy, then you get people also praying to saints. But they're really praying that the saints would deliver their prayers to God the Father, um, and you know that's a different thing than actually praying to the 
uh, praying to the saint, per se. Have you studied other religions? A bit, yeah. I mean, enough. Oh, enough you're aware of them, it. right? Yeah, yeah. In From an ignorant person's point of view like me, if I was to choose a religion, which one <laughs> claims to have the most logical answers? Well, that's that's a, such a tough question. I mean, I, I, you know, anything I say will, will probably be self-serving. I well, let me that, save you a little bit. Let's put Christianity on the side. The other okay. religions, so that you know, I don't want you getting all tweeted out tomorrow. <laughs> uh, uh, put Christianity out of the religions that you have seen and spoken. Which one has the most logical answers? If I was to join a religion. I think um, I think that oh my goodness, you really are putting me on the spot here, my man. No, not at all. You know um, the sort of questions you know, I've been in asking. In some ways, I'd say that uh, I think that Buddhism mm-hmm. is a um, is in some ways. I think uh, you know some Buddhists that you would talk to will say Buddhism isn't a religion; it's more of a life philosophy because Buddhism is not incumbent upon a deity there's no there's not necessarily any divinity right. or divine being in buddhism it's more a way you live your life a way you understand yourself as a human a way you understand other humans in the human experience mm-hmm. i think it's a very logical system it it doesn't rely on any hocus pocus or or what we would say metaphysics that's right. another way to say hocus pocus no kind of other system that's outside of our our experience that can that that solves the problems mm-hmm. or tells us what to do. I think there are a lot of people within Judaism. Uh, I I have friends within Judaism who've also they they're still very much Jewish and live Jewish lives, but they also live a life that's not contingent upon a divine being. So again, they they too are not. Um, bound by any of the kind of hocus-pocus that mm-hmm. those of us who are religious and believe in a God uh, um, hold on to. Right. But the thing about Judaism, you know, is that even if, even without the divine being, you're saying, well, I'm going to keep kosher or I'm going to observe these certain holidays every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those were dictated by a divine being through a sacred text. Okay. And... Um, so you want pure, pure logic? Uh, yeah, there's, and there's, of course, also growing up right now uh, within, there, there's like basically an atheist church that's, that's happening oh. um, that oh. a lot of very logical humanist people are going to. Mm-hmm. I have friends who started one in uh, Los Angeles. Well, that's really not a religion, is it? Well, they're, they're patterning themselves after religion in that they're having... I know. I spoke to an atheist. I had an atheist on the show, and, and then he, he, you know, he said, well, he still has the Christmas tree at home, and he uh-huh. still does all that. And then I'm like, well, uh, hello. I mean, you know, uh, how does that work? You're just picking the best off, whereas religion means, you know, you've got you to gotta encompass the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, enough of the torture corner from me. Uh, <laughs> Your app, let's get into a little bit of self-promotion. We've got about a minute and a half. Um, Ordain Thyself. Tell me quickly, what's it about? 
Well, uh, you know, I think talk about hocus pocus. Mm. I just, I just, even as a clergy person myself, I became frustrated with the fact that in our churches, um, certain people get to do certain things, get to handle sacred objects, get right. to serve communion, and other people don't. They have to sit there and listen and be served. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the kind of community that Jesus came to establish. I think he came to establish a community where everyone was seen as equal, where everyone had dignity and everyone had the same rights. And so it, it was just my way of uh, kind of poking fun at the, 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 class, the classism that comes with ordination and say, hey, you want to get ordained? You know, like, <laughs> download this app. Download this app. Ordained, where can they get the you, app? You can serve communion, too. Where can they get the app? Oh, just on the, just, you know, on the, on the Google Play Store, on the iTunes Store for Android or, or iPhone. And where can we get your book, sir? You can get my book. The best place to go is TonyJ.net, and you can learn everything about the book. You can buy it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or IndieBound. You can... Uh, find it at your local bookstore. You can get it a digital version. You can read my blog. So, TonyJ.net. Tony, thank you so much, and God bless you, sir. Vip, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your followers are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswell and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswell Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones, and until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.